All right, our children are already heading out the door, but if you have got a child grades pre-K through second grade, they can head out to Children's Church now. I believe they've already made their great escape. For the rest of us, we would turn in our Bibles, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We are going to continue in our study of the book of Titus, and we're going to be looking at, at verses just 9 and 10 today. And don't worry, I'm not trying to drag this out as long as I can, um, though you may think that from time to time. Uh, but we want to look at these two passages, Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And if you are not already and you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says this, it says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Please be seated. There are passages in Scripture that sometimes feel untouchable. They are not necessarily because they are untrue or because they are no longer relevant for us today, but they have become untouchable because at some point in history, the passage was hijacked and used by evil men to do evil things in the name of the Lord. Our passage today is one of those passages. It is actually a continuation of what we have already been talking about and what we talked about last week as we were discussing older men and younger men and older women and younger women and just the, the church and discipleship and how the church might glorify God in every area of life. But this exact passage has also been used historically to promote and to justify the enslavement of people, specifically in our nation during the antebellum South, um, African people. And it was a passage that was held over their heads and held over the heads of these American slaves to keep them in line and to keep them living in fear of their masters. Even today, the history of slavery in the U.S. casts a long, dark shadow over the accomplishments of our great nation and makes us want to avoid even talking about slavery as it is presented in the Bible. But these passages are here and they matter. And they are something that we need to communicate and we need to still dive into and to study even today. Because even a passage like this reveals the truth about God, his mission, our role in that mission, and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, let's get into the text today. First, I think we need to have a word about slavery. In fact, the very passage that we have here today, you may notice I'm reading from the New American Standard, and it says, urge bond slaves. The word that, that this passage uses as a bond slave is really just kind of a friendly word for just the word slave. It is the word doulos, and there's no distinction between a bondservant or a slave or, or any other type of way that this word is translated. Now, slavery on the island of Crete and really slavery within the Roman Empire is much different 
than what we often think about slavery as we look at our American history or in the American South. First, slavery was not restricted to any particular racial group. There was no idea that this group was in some way, shape, or form inferior to another and therefore could be enslaved. For the most part, the conquered and the needy made up this group of, of enslaved people. The conquered were those who had come from at some point and had marched against Rome and maybe a foreign nation or a rebellion of some way, shape, or form. And the Roman armies had overwhelmed them and overtook them. And those who had been defeated were taken into slavery. They were sold at some point within the Roman Empire, often to break up groups and to make sure that insurrections did not happen again. This might include warriors, royalty, and even tradesmen that were part of the conquered group. The needy were those who could no longer provide for themselves or for their families. They may have been deeply in debt and had borrowed beyond a point that they were able to pay back, or due to crop failure or business failures, they had found themselves in a place where they were starving. These people would willingly sell themselves in order to live while agreeing to work for someone for a season or possibly even permanently. This meant that slaves could come from a variety of backgrounds. They could have a variety of levels of education and have a variety of levels of skill. They worked in several capacities from general labor to skilled artisan to even positions of leadership within a household or within the government. Nevertheless, they were considered property and they did not have rights according to Roman law, nor could they refuse to work for their owners. This is what this is what slavery looked like in first century Palestine and indeed throughout the Roman Empire. We may ask the question, why did Christianity not fully condemn this manner of living? And it is true that it did not, but neither did it endorse it. Instead, Christianity presented a revolutionary idea that even though there were people in the, on this planet who were slaves, they were also still people created by God, loved by God, and for whom Christ died. Just look at how Paul describes Onesimus to his master Philemon within the book of Philemon. He says of Onesimus these words. He says that he is no longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. This is Paul talking, but also much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. That's Philemon 1 verse 16. Paul continues this idea in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, when he says these words, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. For as much as wicked men could take something like Titus 2 and use it as an excuse to lord over their common man, and force him to remain in slavery and in obedience, so too godly men used verses like Galatians 3.28 to remind that every single human being has been created in the image of God and is worthy of being treated as a human being. And is worthy of the gospel as well. 
In fact, the very, aboli- the very abolition of slavery in the Western world came through passages like Galatians 3.28. So with this in mind, what does Paul say to slaves? Paul gives slaves three instructions about how they are to conduct themselves now that they are in Christ. And really, I want you to think about that Galatians chapter 3 passage because I really think that Paul's response to the the slaves and, and the conversation that he's having with the slaves and really even the need to say these things in this letter probably comes from slaves who are beginning to take a passage like 328, take a teaching like we see from Galatians 328, and had begun to twist it and to misuse it in, er, in order to serve their own wants and desires. Paul is addressing this temptation, first off, the temptation to be not be submissive to their masters. The word submission here is, is, is this idea of being placed under the authority of another person. We see this, this idea today in how a soldier will obey the orders of a commanding officer. He is, understands that this, is, that this person is the commanding officer and this is where I am and I have placed myself under this person, willingly might I add, placed myself under this person in order to do what he has asked me to do. Believe it or not, we see this exact same sentence structure used a little bit differently in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, but as to the church, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So, just so I can make everybody angry in the room, slaves were to be subject in their, to their masters in the same way that wives ought to be subject to their husbands and the church ought to be subject to Christ. This is a hard thing for us to swallow in our culture today. And most of that is because of all the negative things that we have attached to the word submission. And I understand that. And we don't like these things. We don't like it because of the dark history of slavery and how it was misused. We don't like it because of the way things that have gone in marriages in our day and age to the idea of submitting to your husband seems to lay up this idea of being a doormat or being abused by, by a male But when we then look at the last part of as as Christ or as as the church ought to submit to Christ, we recognize the reality that that idea was not attached to this word at that time. We actually have to pull ourselves, yank ourselves out of our own cultural understanding of, of this word to submit or to be into submission and to begin to recognize the godly idea behind this. See, submission has nothing to do with the value of the person who is doing the submitting. When the Bible says, slaves, be subject to your masters, when it says, uh, wives, be subject to your husbands, when it says, church, be subject to Christ, it is not reducing the value of the one who submits. Rather, it is, it is communicating the trust that we ought to have in God. Think about it for just a moment, church. Why on earth would we willfully submit to God even when we do not want to or we do not like what that looks like? Why would you do it? 
Well, the answer is really pretty simple. If you have surrendered yourself to Christ, it is because you trust that they have your well-being at heart. Right? When we say, I, as a, as a member of the church, and I, as a member of the body of Christ, submit myself to Christ's rule in my life, even when I don't like it and even when I don't want to, it is because that I trust that God's way will always be better than my own. Right? Now, husbands, take it down a notch. You ain't perfect. Trust me. And if you're not sure you're not perfect, ask your wife. She'll let you know where you, where you could probably have, have some room for growth. We don't get to have that same standard, but rather we can trust that our husbands want what's best for us. And husbands, we are supposed to, like Christ, love our wives and want what's best for them and put them ahead of ourselves, even to the point of sacrificing ourselves to see our spouse grow in every aspect. So too is the relationship between the slave and the master within the kingdom of God. And that while this existed and this this dynamic existed, The slave was to trust their Christian master that their Christian master was going to do what was best for them and the master had an obligation to take care of that slave. Okay? In fact, one of the most revolutionary things about the New Testament as it begins to have this discussion about slaves and masters is on multiple occasions in the book of Ephesians, in the book of Colossians, you see not only an address to the slaves and their behavior, but also an address to the masters and how they ought to treat their slaves. The Lord had put a, 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 a limitation and had put a purpose onto the masters of slaves so that they would treat them justly and fairly and allow them to grow in their knowledge and faith of Christ. Not only this, but he calls the slaves to be well-pleasing and he contrasts that with being not argumentative. Just because the slaves were now, knew that they were of equal value in the eyes of God as their masters... It did not mean that they now had a right to argue, question, and generally be insubordinate to their masters. There may have been a temptation to be combative among the slaves and Crete and their their newfound salvation and their worth in Christ. However, Paul warns them to to not make the life of their masters harder due to their new faith. Philippians 2.4 communicates this well in an avenue that has nothing to do with slavery when he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Finally, he calls the slaves to not steal, but to be trustworthy, to show good faith in every way, shape, and form. As we look back in the book of Acts, we see that in the early church that there was that, that they had all things in common. Acts 2, verse 44 and 45 reads this. It says, And all those who were believers were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their own property and possessions and were sharing them with anyone who might have need. But this still did not mean that the slaves could just take from their masters whatever they wanted, counting on their continued generosity because they, because they were supposed to have all things in common. On the contrary, this was stealing. And it was forbidden even in the New Testament 
As Ephesians 4.28 says, he who steals must steal no longer. Instead, the believing slave should be the most trustworthy slave that he has. And he should know that this is a man who will keep his word because he fears the Lord. And so we see when, when in this context, in this situation, when the slave was being obedient to God, he was not going to be combative. He was not going to steal. He was not going to be insubordinate. He was not going to create havoc and, and, and trouble and, and stress for his, his believing master. And it really didn't matter who the master was. The, the slave's witness was carried out through his obedience and his hard work. Which really begs the question today, because obviously you are with me today and no one here in the room is a slave. How on earth do we apply this passage today? We are not slaves, nor would we even remotely encourage anyone today to remain in slavery in any way, shape or form. Still to this day, I think it is the duty of every Christian to, to be involved in some way, shape, or form in the stopping of human trafficking as well as slavery that still exists in the world today. So how is this passage relevant? How do we look at something like this and this, this advice to slaves and say, this is still teaching us something today? And the answer is found in verse 10 in that so that conjunction. Always in Scripture, when we get to a place where it says, so that, therefore, for this reason, we're being clued in on the, the character of God and how it is presenting itself and the desires of God and how it is presenting itself through these actions and through these behaviors. Look again at verse 10 when we get to that so that pace, uh, passage. He says, so that. They will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Okay. So here is what I want you to get from this passage. No matter who you are, no matter how you live, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what your socioeconomic class is, no matter how much you know about the Bible or how little you know about the Bible, in the eyes of Jesus, you matter. And not only that you matter, but you can do something. You can worship. You can. And I want you to think about this for a second. No matter who you are, you can adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Now, these were slaves. In the eyes of the Roman government, they weren't even people. They didn't have rights. They, didn't, they couldn't vote. They had no say over their life whatsoever. In the eyes of the Roman government, these people, these slaves, were property. But in the eyes of God, they were something very different. In the eyes of God, they were people. They were not only people, that they were people created in the image of God. And they were people who, through their obedience to Christ, could adorn the teachings of God in every respect. You know, when we translate to today, there's a lot of times where, and I want you to internalize this, I don't want you to necessarily put this out on someone else. There are a lot of times where we feel like we have no purpose and we have no place in the kingdom of God. 
And, and that's true. That's true for everybody in the room. I want you to know that. Some of us feel that way because we're young. And we're young and we don't feel like we make a difference and we don't feel like anybody listens to us. And because we are young and young can mean a lot of different age groups for the record. We feel like we have no place. And when we live for Jesus, no one cares. It's not true. For some of us, it's because we're old. And we can't do the things we used to do. We're not getting up on ladders and changing light bulbs anymore. We're not teaching Bible studies because we don't have the energy for it. We're not mowing yards and doing all the, the service things anymore. We're past the point where we can use our strength and our energy. And so we feel like we have no place or purpose in the church anymore. That's not true either. Some people, it's because they're poor. And they can't give like they want to give, whether to the church or to all the offerings that we do. They can't serve the way they want to serve because sometimes that costs money. And they think they don't have any value. That's not true. Some of us, it's because we don't do what I'm doing. For some of you, I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I asked you to come up onto this stage and say anything, you probably would start sweating just thinking about it. And you would panic and you think that because you can't teach a Sunday school class or preach a sermon or give your testimony or sing a song that, that, that there's no, you don't have value within the kingdom of God. It's not true. Paul spoke to people who the world told them had no value and said, you not only have value, but you adorn the teachings of God. I want you to think about what this is even saying. Paul is saying that the behavior of these slaves would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The word adorn is a kind of a neat word, and it's the same word where we get the term cosmetics. And if you're a guy in the room and you have no idea what cosmetics are, give me a second, I'll explain it to you. Cosmetics is the makeup. That, that ladies put on, typically still ladies today, that ladies put on to beautify themselves. Now, you ladies don't need it, but go for it. And so when it says that, you, that, that when you do these things, that you adorn the doctrine of God, it is saying that you beautify it that you make it beautiful, that you set it in order, that you, that, that you make it, it this, this beautiful, wonderful, attractive thing. People who were considered property could beautify our faith and our witness in every way, way through how they lived in obedience to God. Think about that. That's a revolutionary idea there, by the way. To turn to slaves and say, you can beautify our witness. You can beautify our message. You can, by your, by your obedience and by your living out these commands, you can make the gospel of Jesus Christ something that is interesting and even desirable to those outside of our faith. That is the power that he gives to slaves. Now just think what God can do with you and your obedience. Just think what God can do for you. And do, let me rephrase that. Just think of what God can do through 
you. When you live for Him. It doesn't matter if you're the best speaker in the world. It doesn't matter if you're the best singer in the world. It doesn't matter if you're the wealthiest or the poorest. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. It doesn't matter if you are black or white or any other ethnicity out there. None of that matters. What matters is, will you trust the Lord? And in trusting Him, will you humbly do what He is calling you to do? And when the answer is yes, God can use your life and your witness in such powerful and amazing ways that, believe it or not, people will come to know Christ through your obedience. Now, that doesn't mean we can't share or we shouldn't share and it's just all about our life. But man, God can do amazing things with our life. And brothers and sisters, this is why the gospel is such wonderful news. See, we can find all the differences in our lives. And this was a difference that existed in in the Roman age. And this was just a reality in Crete that, that there were free people and there were slaves. There were Jews and there were Greeks. There were Roman citizens and there were conquered people. They were men and they were women and there's all these things that were different. And Paul is, is addressing those differences throughout our passage um, in Titus chapter 2. But there are things that put us all together. Number one, we are all guilty of sin. In fact, we are all equally guilty of sin. And the most holy person that you see in this room is still a sinner. And the most awful, heinously sinful person in this room is just as much a sinner as the holy one that you think is holy. We are all guilty of sin. We all need a Savior. And Christ came to save us all. And not just save us but to give us purpose within the kingdom of God. From the greatest to the least, from the person on the stage speaking and singing to the person hiding in the back with the soundboard, every single one of us are co-heirs in the kingdom of God and are called this day to obedience and to see the kingdom go forth. Every single one of us can make a difference. And every single one of us can beautify the gospel message through our lives. So what will we do? Well, I know where we need to start. And that is by giving our lives to Christ. You may be with us today and you may think that God has no interest in you. That you have no value in God's eyes. That you have missed the boat, that you have messed up too big, or that you've just never even taken time to consider the fact that God loves you specifically. 
and, those, and therefore you've never given your life to Him. But I have news for you today that regardless of where you are, whether young or old, whether male nor, or, or female, whatever you are, wherever you are in your life, Christ loves you and He gave His life for you. And He gave His life to save you from your sin and to give you new life in Christ. <coughs> and we see that through His death and resurrection. And that if you will surrender your life to Jesus, that you will be saved and that you can begin to recover and pursue God's design for your life. And we invite you to do that today. No strings attached. You don't have to cut your hair. You don't have to give us any money. You just need to believe. And we'll trust God to do the rest. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we, we thank you for passages like this one. Lord, these are tough passages that often um, challenge us in our understanding of who you are. God, as we look at a passage like this, we may begin to wonder how on earth can we learn from this passage? And God, we praise you because what we see in this passage is that you love everyone from the, the, the greatest to the least. And that God, in your great love, from the greatest to the least, that you can call anyone at any point in their life to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And so God, we come before you now and we praise you for that. God, we stand in awe of that. And God, we pray that you use us. Lord, for some today, I know that means giving their life to Jesus for the first time. That means surrendering their life and, and, and recognizing that you have a plan and a purpose for their life and that they would just surrender their life to you, putting their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior, Lord, that you will save them. Lord, I pray that they will not wait another day. But Lord, that even today they will begin to be obedient to you and in doing so that they might beautify the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.